If you have your Bible, I want you to go to Revelation with me this morning. Revelation chapter 4. My passage will be out of Revelation chapter 5. But I will prepare you. This entire address is probably going to be very different than anything I've ever done. I don't even know if I call this preaching as much as I want to read God's Word, attempt to tell you a story from God's Word, and bring us to the culmination of the greatest story about God's Word, which is the table of the Lord this morning. We are going to, on this Communion Sunday, take a break from 1 Timothy, and I want to look at the idea that this table represents the end of the beginning. And we're going to look at a heavenly drama that is found in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to follow along as I read Revelation chapter 4 and all of chapter 5. You have come to the point of history when the church is in some of the darkest times. John the Apostle is on the Isle of Patmos. He has been exiled there. And he has a series of visions. Beginning in Revelation chapter 4, this is the beginning of the series of visions when he says, after this, after receiving messages to seven churches, he says, after this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Now picture that. Imagine if you were looking at the skies this afternoon and it seemed like a door opened and you could see into heaven itself. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. And the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them, had six wings, and they're full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, 
the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. That's vision one. Now vision two. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. And this angel comes and says, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And that must have been some question. Because look at how far it reverberates. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders one of those 24 elders came to me and said, Weep no more. Behold, look, John, at the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out unto all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll. And to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then John says, I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elder, elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped and may God add his blessing to the proclamation of his word What makes for a great drama? 
what makes for a great movie, television series. What are the movies in pop culture that cause the largest numbers of people to go and see them and buy them and download them and watch them over and over again? Well, think about it. First, you need someone you can identify with. If you're going to create a movie or a television series or a show, and then you need, of course, a villain. And then you need a hero. And then you need a great story to weave through all the players and characters of it. And so you have movies that have made and stood the history of time, movies like the Rocky series or Star Trek or Star Wars or old, old ones for some of our older saints, old great Western shows like Bonanza or Gunsmoke. Then there's those action movies beyond just Star Wars. And what about Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia or James Bond? Then there's those epic historical movies like Ben-Hur or The Gladiator, not to mention the Marvel series of, of Superman and Spider-Man and the Avengers and all of these things. And all of these movies are and were popular because they made you root for someone. They made you root for a cause. You see, movies are thick with suspense. They usually involve an individual or a group of people that are on the verge of destruction or defeat. And when the hero has been defeated or isn't there, and when it seems all is lost and evil will win, the music builds, the people suffer, tears are shed, all is hopeless, and then it happens. Out of nowhere, either through the sky, coming onto the field, or up from the grave, somewhere someone comes, the hero. The one who will stop the evil, change the game, rescue the girl, help the family, protect the planet, save the galaxy. The day is saved. When we've seen them a thousand times and yet we watch them over and over. Why is it that as human beings we're drawn to that type of a plot? Why do you think Hollywood keeps producing this kind of storyline? Well, I want to submit as we come to the table of the Lord, I actually think Hollywood should have to pay God royalties or should be sued for copyright infringement because the greatest story ever told is the real one, which is in this book called the Bible. It's the greatest story. And you go all the way back to Genesis. We're given the story of humanity. God created if you look into the Bible for proof that God exists, it's not there. He simply claims it. The Bible assumes God exists. It says, in the beginning, God created. And he created a perfect world, free from death, free from illness, free from evil. And then the villain is born, Satan himself, this beautiful strong, powerful angel, the greatest of all the angels, according to Isaiah chapter 14, that gives us the personification of him. He tells, him there was, tells us there was none like him in beauty or strength. Only God himself was above him, and Satan didn't like it. And so he rebels against God. He convinces a third of the angelic hosts to go with him. Meanwhile, back on earth, God has passed dominion of the earth over to man, particularly to Adam. And that's what David meant when he wrote Psalm chapter 8. And if I was going to use words like today, it would say, God says in Psalm 8, you made them a little lower than the angels. 
and you crowned them with glory and honor. You put them in charge of everything you made. You put all things under their control. But tragedy strikes. Satan deceives Eve. Adam willfully turns his back on God. And in Genesis chapter 3, sin and death and evil enters the world and creation is lost from man and God. Matthew 4 tells us that Satan took control and his only aim has always been to defeat God and subject, enslave, and destroy mankind and all of God's creation. And that is why God says what he does to Satan in Genesis 3.15. He says to Satan, I will make you and the woman enemies to each other. Your descendants and her descendants will be enemies. One of her descendants will crush your head and you will bite his heel. You'll be like a chihuahua nipping at the heels. And this is prophesied over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And finally, when you come to Matthew in the New Testament, the hero, Messiah, comes. The hero emerges. He's the one who would conquer Satan. He would conquer and control demons and all those who have tried to rule and control this world. And are you ready for this? There have been many that have tried to control the planet. From Pharaoh to Nebuchadnezzar. From Alexander to Augustus. From Hitler to Hussein. They've all tried, but Jesus came into this world born of a virgin, living a perfect life and performing miracles, miracles over life and death and disease, nature, all of it as a picture of what perfection was meant to look like. Miracles are not miraculous. They are glimpses of what's supposed to be normal when God's creation functions the way it's supposed to. And then if you read, the masses follow him, thousands believe but then Satan attacks. Pharisees conspire. The people reject. Rome executes. Jesus dies. And then it's dark. And there's sorrow and doubt and despair. But wait. Three days later, and the greatest miracle of them all, Jesus lives. He lives. He conquers death. He overcomes sin. He, he dispels despair. And he walks and talks among the living for 40 days. And then Acts chapter 1, he ascends to heaven with the promise to return in just this same manner. The followers, the 120 in the upper room, are energized and they're encouraged and they obey his every word and they wait on him. And then the Holy Spirit comes as cloven tongues of fire and they prophesy and they speak in tongues just as Jesus promised. And more miracles occur and mass conversions occur and beggars and priests and Jews and Gentiles and men and women all coming to Christ and books are written, apostles are leading, churches are starting and then attack. Satan starts using more men to kill and persecute. And by the time I read to you Revelation chapter 4 and 5, 65 years has gone by since Jesus ascended. And all the apostles, all of them, but John are dead. He's been boiled in oil according to some traditions. 
He's exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Everyone is gone. The church is slowing down. Many have died or abandoned the faith. True doctrine is under attack. Rome is in complete control. Domitian the emperor, one of the most evil, makes the world call him Lord and God. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is gone. All seems lost. Even the church is written to in Revelation 2 and 3. Of the seven, only two of the seven are still really pure before Christ. John is exiled. And again, doubts and fears. And as we'll see in a moment, tears are being shed. Maybe, just maybe, even a few Christians are wondering, as Peter says in 1 Peter, where is the promise of his coming? And have you wondered this? I have. My parents came to Christ when I was five. I've been around Christianity most of my life. I have heard the stories of Jesus coming and Jesus winning, and the world seems to just get worse and worse and more chaotic, and there are times I have found myself wondering, Lord, are you ever coming back? The plot thickens. The church is in need All are about to fall. Defeat seems inevitable. Jesus is gone. Maybe he's not coming back. Maybe Satan wins. (laughs) And then Revelation chapter 4 happens. In chapter 4 and 5, as we've read, John sees this door, and he's transported long before Rottenbury ever said, talking about being transported. He's transported to the heavenly throne room of God where he sees the all-powerful, all-knowing, always-present, eternal God of the universe on his throne. Creation is his because he created it. The choirs of heaven sing and bow down to him. But wait, the music's building because there's more. And we begin to see our drama with John's first words. And I saw. John says, and I saw this. What did he see? Well, in verse 1 of chapter 5, he sees God is on his throne and a scroll is in his hand. God's on his throne and a scroll is in his hand. And notice, it's God's right hand. God's right hand. Jesus tells us that God is on his throne. Sorry, John tells us that God is on his throne and then proceeds to give us our first vivid description of God. He sees the hand of God. It is extended out, and the better reading would be that the scroll is on the hand of God. God's hand is open, and the scroll is on it. He's not even clutching it. He's offering it out. Here's the scroll. Here's the title deed to earth and creation. If you read Ezekiel chapter 2, all of it is there, right down to the scroll and all. And you'll notice then there's God's scroll. What John saw you got to realize he would have instantly understood because it was very regular in his first century world. The Greeks used scrolls and the Romans used them. And it would be written on the inner side, rolled up, sealed with a wax seal. And this time it would have had seven seals. And a short description would have been written on the outer side. This scroll contained the plan of God. The entire plan, all of history, God's redemptive plan and the future plan for God's creation. That's you and I. God has this scroll with the plan for all of mankind in it. Grant Osborne, who teaches at Trinity Divinity School in Chicago, Illinois, says this. It was the death of Christ that anchored God's redemptive plan. 
And the rest of Revelation describes the events that will bring that plan to completion. Thus, this scroll talks of the judgments that will fall on Satan and his demons and the cursed earth and those who reject Christ. All to purge it and to purify it. Romans 8, 19 tells us that earth is caught in the bondage of decay. Craig Keener, the commentator, says, If we feel uncomfortable with the ideas of judgment, perhaps it's because we've grown more comfortable with the world than with suffering among Jesus' witnesses. This scroll in chapter 5 is the same scroll of Revelation chapter 10. And we'll learn the proper response in Revelation chapter 10 to the contents of this scroll, which is what we've seen, worship, adoration, submission, and obedience. The seven seals represent completeness once again. And this is what will be described in chapter 6 as the beginning of sorrows. John says next, then I saw. John both saw and heard a strong and mighty angel, the strong angel, one we do not know by name, only by his power and his appearance, and really more by his voice and what he proclaims. Because what does he say? He says, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? And he trumpets that out, not only to John, but through all of creation, And so in verse 2, a call for a worthy one rings out. A call for a worthy one. And, And notice it's twofold. Who is worthy to open and who is worthy to loose? So it's who is the one worthy to take possession of and who is the one worthy to open up all these seals? You need to wonder now, the word worthy there does not mean moral worthiness. It's bigger than that. The angel is looking for the one who is sufficient, the one who has the ability, the one who has the power, the one who has the authority. And that's why Jesus said what he said in John chapter 5. For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son. Why? That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father who has sent him. We've heard it over and over again in the songs, in Hebrews chapter 1, in that video, in Psalm chapter 2. God promised the title deed of earth to Jesus. In Psalm chapter 2, it says, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. But probably the most tragic part of this chapter is when the call goes out, who is worthy, and you've seen all the pomp and circumstance of chapter 4, and then it says, John says, and no one stood up, stepped forward. Now, I don't know about you, but I I get raptured up in movies. My son laughs at me because I can cry at any good movie. I used to watch when the kids were growing up. On Sunday nights, we would come home, and we would get McDonald's, and we'd watch America's Funniest Home Videos, and then that was Abby's time to go to bed. And then me and the boys would watch, watch Extreme Home Makeover Home Edition. And the boys would almost watch and wait to see how long it would take Dad to start bawling. Because I would cry. They'd tell you the story and the music and everything, and the people would, tears would form, and I'm, I'm so sorry for them. Here in this, John looks out 
And I can hear it, all the pomp and circumstance, all the noise and sights, the mighty boom over all of heaven, and then silence. No one moves. No one steps forward. No phone rings. No one texts in. Nothing. Silence. And John begins to weep and wail and cry and mourn. A search of the entire universe from heaven to hell and nothing points towards anybody being worthy. And that would mean the only option we have is for all of creation to look into the face of God and see Him as judge. That would be our fate if no one answers the call. John's weeping here is a Greek word used of Peter when he went out and wept bitterly after denying Jesus. It's the same word used of Jesus when he stood over Jerusalem and he wept over Jerusalem after his triumphal entry. It means unrestrained emotion. It wasn't that single tear that just quietly rolls. He wailed. He looked around and he panicked. And he went, is there nobody? Why won't anybody stand? Where is someone? Why won't someone come? Why won't someone rescue us? W.A. Criswell tells us why John wept. He says, John's tears represent the tears of all God's people through all the centuries. Those tears of the Apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve driven out of the Garden of Eden as they bowed over the first grave. As they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the silent, still form of their son Abel. They are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried unto God in their affliction and slavery. They are the tears of God's elect through the centuries as they cried unto heaven. They are the sobs and tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they looked on their silent dead and they stand before their open graves and they experience in the trials and sufferings of life heartaches and disappointments indescribable. Such is the curse that sin has laid upon God's beautiful creation. And this is the damnation of the hand of him who holds it, that usurper, that interloper, that intruder, that alien, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan devil. John wept for the failure to find a redeemer means that this earth in its curse is consigned forever to death. It meant that death and sin and damnation and hell should reign forever and ever and the sovereignty of God's earth should remain forever in the hands of Satan. If no one steps up, we are damned. Joseph Seiss says it like this, such anxious and tearful longing for the better country and the ransomed inheritance is noticed in heaven. That's why Jesus taught us to pray in John 6. Remember when he says in the Lord's Prayer, pray this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's not a tagline at the end of a prayer. That's a desperate cry for God to fix what is broken. 
But then as the drama thickens and all seems lost and hopeless, John's crying. And so, in fact, are we in all of creation? Because in Romans, we're told in Romans chapter 10 that all creation groans. And an elder steps up to John. (laughs) And in effect, he says, stop your crying, John. Look, gaze upon, behold. And in verse 5, the worthy one is found. It's the Lion of Judah. That Lion of Judah is taken from Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10, where Judah is promised by his father Jacob these words. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up and stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as an old lion. The old King James says, whom shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. The magnificent title, Lion, points to Christ as the one who shall reign as king. I mentioned movies. Have you ever seen that movie or read the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? from the Chronicles of Narnia. And in it, there's that little part between Susan and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Susan says, but shall we see him? Why, daughter of Eden? That's why I've brought you here. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, Mr. Beaver said sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I, I, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. Maybe she was a Newfoundlander. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mr. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Later, Mr. Beaver says, he's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. No, he's not a tame lion. He will defeat his enemies, yet he is good, and he will care for his people. Calvary, Jesus Christ is the lion of Judah. He's the lion used to describe God and Job and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Amos. And there's a military overtone here. Jesus is seen as the Messiah in military power and victory over his enemies. But notice, he's also the root of Jesse. He's the root of Jesse. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
In verse 4 of chapter 11, it says, it says this, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. This elder describes Jesus in terms of a divine warrior. But I want us to all understand something. Jesus is not only a descendant of David, but he's the source of David. You remember in Matthew 22, when the Pharisees tried to trip up Jesus and tempt him? So Jesus says, well, I've got a question for you. And he says, while the Pharisees were gathered, Jesus asked them, what think you guys of Christ? What do you think of Christ? Whose son is he after all? And they said to him, well, the Messiah is the son of David. And he said to them, okay, then how does David, who in the spirit calls his own son Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit you at my right hand till I make your enemies thy footstool. Brother Derek read this in Hebrews chapter 1. And then David says, well, if David called him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. And they stopped asking him any questions from that day forward. Because he's not just the son of David, he's the source of David. So John hears these words and he composes himself and he looks towards the throne of God once again. And this time he sees something he has never seen before. There is the lion of the tribe of of Judah, of the root of Jesse. But listen how John describes him. But look, I looked and behold, a lamb as it had been slain, standing, standing. See, in verse 6 and 7, the worthy one is Christ, and Christ is on his throne. He lives. This is the centerpiece of the chapter. John sees a lamb, which, by the way, the Greek word there means a little lamb. It's the favorite word of John. He uses this word lamb 28 times in the book of Revelation alone. It's only used three other times in the entire New Testament. And the word is the same as the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb. And he's right here in the midst of the throne. And just like he said he would, hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Because Christ is the lamb of the world. John sees the lamb who bears the marks of slaughter. And yet he's alive. He lives. That's the central theme of the New Testament church. Christ's worthiness to break the the seals, his worthiness to open the scroll and inherit the kingdom is based on the victory he's won as the Lamb of the Cross. That's what we're going to do today. One man has written it this way. Revelation is part of the New Testament precisely because it preaches the same gospel as the rest of the New Testament preaches. All of history depends on the cross. So Christ is the all-powerful and all-knowing worthy one. In our passage, he has seven horns and seven eyes. Now, if you want to know about Revelation, anytime you see that word seven, it means completeness or perfection. Thus, John is telling us that Jesus is the omnipotent lamb. He's the omnipresent lamb. Doesn't it almost seem like a bit of a contradiction? The sacrificial lamb is here the warrior ram. He conquered Satan. He conquered sin and death by dying himself, but by purifying and purging of creation will come through the righteous judgment of the lion of the tribe of Judah. And verse 7 records the finale. 
the monumental act by our hero. Everything that started back in chapter 4, verse 1 is now going to climax here in chapter 5, verse 7. Everything that follows in chapter 6 through 19 of Revelation is because of what Jesus does right here. Because the worthy one steps forward, the music builds, everybody stops in awe, and you realize you've hit the climax of the movie. The drama is finally going to reach its fulfillment. He steps forward and he takes back what was God's to begin with. He's going to restore creation back to what it was intended for. Paradise will be regained. Eden will be restored. Victory is ours. Worthy is the Lamb. So why did I leave First Timothy and look at Revelation today? Why are we pondering these things as we come to communion on the first Sunday of 2016 or the last Sunday of January of 2016? Think about our world. Think of how often we do things without thinking. Without seeing the big picture. Why do we study Revelation like this on a day like today? Because it contains the culmination of the purposes of God. It contains the central message, the message that is crucial to all of time. The cross was the decisive victory. It is guaranteed the final triumph of God's cause and God's people over all the forces that opposed him, including Satan, including his demons, including the wicked of this world and the curse that hovers over it. So Revelation chapter 4 is all about God and his creation. Revelation chapter 5 is all about Christ, the lion lamb, and what is about God is about to do. Now, think of Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11, and try and see it differently now. Wherefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. One day, church, Jesus will not be the punchline of a joke or the expression of frustration when men hit their nail with a hammer. It will be the name by which humanity bows down. And it'll be of all the things in heaven and all the things on earth and all the things that are under the earth. And every tongue should confess, not that just Jesus Christ may be real, but he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now listen, everybody, we will all one day stand before Christ Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But here's my question for everybody. Who will you stand before? Who will you stand before? The lion or the lamb? The choice is yours to make. You see, acknowledging Jesus as the worthy one is to make him the Lord of your life. He owns it and controls it. But he's good. He is love and gentle and full of compassion. His mercies are new every morning. He's the chief shepherd because he is the lamb. Is he safe? No. But he is good. The drama 
is now about to enter its final scene. Songs of jubilation will precede the final death blow to evil, and God is the creator on his throne. Jesus is the worthy lion lamb who has taken possession of what is rightfully his. The hero is here to win the day, and the final battle between good and evil is soon to be fought. The question remains, whose side are you on? Joshua said to the people of Israel in Joshua chapter 24, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but if God be God, serve him. Charles Ladd said it best when he wrote, The lesson of these verses is that Christ alone has the key to the meaning of human history. The implication of this is only from the perspective of heaven can anyone and everyone understand what will take place on the earth. God is on the throne. Jesus is our Redeemer. What is my response to this unchangeable truth? Is it to admit? Pastor Steve, listen. I I need to admit I'm a sinner. I've got to turn away from my sin, and I've got to turn to Christ. I want to do what I've read about here, and I want to bow down to God and trust in Christ and have the Lamb of God become my Redeemer and my Savior and bring me to God as my Father because Christ alone is the worthy one who can cover my sin and restore me to God as Father. For those of us here, as we come to the table of the Lord, the sight of Jesus as a slaughtered lamb needs to remind us of our real problem, sin. It's not that we've done bad things. We're bad people. On the cross, Jesus gained victory by dying. He conquered through death. He substituted himself for you and for me. And God's acceptance is proven by Jesus rising from the dead. Who will deliver, who, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification? And the video showed you it's not how strong your faith is. It's the object of your faith. It's not a faith contest. It's resting in Jesus. As a Christian, how do you respond to these timeless truths? Are you weary in well-doing? Have you lost your focus? John Calvin wrote, Divine revelation is like a pair of eyeglasses. Without the word of God, people have defective vision. That's why we want to make this year the year of the Bible. In chapter 4 of Revelation, John affirmed that God is worthy to judge and rule because he's the creator. In chapter 5, he stated that Jesus is worthy because he is the redeemer. This passage is... Is it a rebuke to us as believers because we seem a little too content with the world? When was the last time you and I prayed, thy kingdom come and meant it? Can first century Christians understand the passionate longing that caused John to weep for the kingdom to come? Is it possible that we have insincerity when we sing songs about heaven because it shows the coldness of our hearts at times and that's why we need to celebrate the table it stirs our affections Spurgeon Charles Spurgeon who died today this is the day of his death said by weeping eyes the Lamb of God is best seen 
we've learned that Jesus is the centerpiece of God's plan. Is he the centerpiece of your life and mine? I want us to never forget that thousands have cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they left unchanged, caught in the emotions of the moment, but not in the heart of the Redeemer. The worthiness of the Lamb to break the seals demonstrates that he is the key to history. Does life have meaning? Does history have a goal? Yes. The scriptures say yes, and it will be seen by everyone when Jesus enters into his inheritance, his dominion over his kingdom on this earth. He has the right to break the seals and to take control of the affairs of the world, which are his. So as we come to the table of the Lord, Calvary, are you, am I, living in the shadow of Revelation 4 and 5? Do you and I, do we truly long to see Jesus make things right? I know it's a cliche. But how would your life change if you knew Jesus was coming back at midnight tomorrow? How would it alter our priorities? How would it change the way we look at people? How would it alter who we call and talk to? How would it change our prayer times? You realize, church, he could come back tonight. He may. Let's not sing about it. Let's live it. Come to this table today and know first that you are a child of God, that you have asked for and received God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. But then come to the table with the prayers of thy kingdom come, Lord. Thy will be done. Come to this table knowing that no matter what life is like now, Christ has won the victory. Remember the video? Stop whining and being guilt-ridden and shame-filled because you're not living that perfect life or your faith is not exactly what you think it should be or it doesn't seem to ever be as strong as everybody else's. Remember, it's not the size of your faith but the object of your faith. Jesus Christ. And so I want us to come and celebrate. I want us to come and contemplate. I want us to come and confess. <laughs> but then, church, I want us to unite I want us to rejoice and I want us to anticipate what is ours. Jesus, forgiveness, hope. It doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. And that, my friends, is the end of the beginning. Let's pray. Father God, Father God, forgive me when I play church. Father God, I pray that the emotion I'm feeling right now, the passion I feel towards you, would follow me into the afternoon and into this week. Father, that Debbie and Jordan and Abby will see in their dad something that's real, not something that's fake and put on.
And I pray that for every member of this church. Lord, as we now celebrate the table of the Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who would say, Lord, I don't know if I know you. They would realize that faith in God is found simply by coming to you and saying, Lord, I believe in you, but help thou my unbelief. Help them not to worry about measuring the size of their faith, but putting their faith in you, trusting you. I pray for us as a church now as we celebrate the table of the Lord that, Father, pretense and ritual and habit and tradition will not overcome, but be enhanced as we think deeply about you who are worthy as the living Lamb who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Father God, send your Spirit into this place. In the name of Jesus, thy kingdom come and thy will be done.